Well, happy July. This is what we live for, people. This is what we live for. Hang in there with me, you bunch of youpers. Man, I'll tell you, this is good. This is, this is, this is why Claudia moved here, okay? <laughs> Claudia moved here for this, okay? The, the three days that we get like this. She came from Texas to do this. Oh, man, it is great to be with you today. Do you realize that what you are doing right now, and I'm not talking about fanning yourself with the bulletin insert, okay? (laughs) Do you know that it is scientifically proven to be good for you? Did you know that? Going, not sweating, (laughs) going to church is scientifically proven to be good to you. I came across a New York Times op-ed piece from 2013, and the the lady's name was T.M. Lerman, and here's the quote. One of the most striking scientific discoveries about religion in recent years is that going to church weekly is good for you. Religious attendance boosts immune system, decreases the blood pressure, it may add as much as two or three years to your life. The reason for this is not entirely clear. I'm telling you, I'm really glad that I go to church weekly, okay? Because I almost checked out of here uh, five months ago. And so maybe it was just going to church that kept me going. I'm, I, I don't know. But I, 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 you know, I'm part of this. I don't know if you realize it, but statistics nationwide for church attendance, generally we accept that, that church attendance in America is, is 20% of Americans attend church regularly. Now we've actually had to adjust the meaning for the word regularly. Okay, and regularly is described as being three out of eight or more. Okay, because the 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 very notion of regularly is going down, and so we've expanded the definition. And the general accepted percentage is 20%, but really the most accurate and up to date numbers would be 16%. 16% of Americans attend church regularly, I'll take it a step further. They anticipate that by the year 2050, so in almost 30 years, that number will be down to under 12%. All right, now you want me to hit you with the real rough one? People in the UP believe that statistically, the the people in the UP attend far less than the national average. And the general accepted statistic for the Upper Peninsula is more around 20%, or excuse me, 10% right now. Now, I don't have anything to verify that or back that one up. That's just what what people talk about, and and I haven't seen a study, but that's what is generally accepted. So our country, our nation, when it comes to coming together, is going in a direction, all right? We can, we can understand that. We can see that, right? That's what's happening in our world. 
So here's a question. How can we convince people that coming together with others who identify with the church, how can we convince them that doing so is actually beneficial to their lives? And what are the benefits of coming together with those who identify as the church? And and how does consistently attending church make their life better? I believe that that is something that people would like to know or they feel already that they can't quantify it. I can't quantify how going to church will actually make my life better. And this morning what I'd like to do is talk about four ways that I believe that coming together as the body of Christ and worshiping the Lord together, and I'm, I'm just taking it for granted that we're talking about regularly and not just three out of eight, okay? But doing that regularly, the benefits that that has in our lives. The first one is this. It gives me a sense of being connected to God. Now, back in the 90s, and that doesn't seem so long ago in my mind, but when I say the 90s, it kind of does. Uh, Back in the 90s, we served uh, in a large suburban church in the Milwaukee area. And one morning, I came into the church, and I got there about 7.30 in the morning, and it uh, it was more in the fall time of the year and uh, it was dark out so it, it really seemed early and so I got there to the church and I mean there was a buzz of activity in the church and normally at 7 30 in the morning at church there's not a buzz it's more of just a hum okay it's it's you know people aren't awake yet and there were people running everywhere, and I came through into the foyer of the church, and I, I discovered why there were people moving around so quickly. The front doors, the glass double doors, the main entrance of the church were wide. I mean, they were just, they were smashed into a bazillion pieces, okay? <laughs> Megan? The, the, the little glass thing I had going on here a few weeks ago, that was nothing. This was the entire foyer of the church was covered in little tiny pieces of glass. And I'm trying to figure out what in the world has happened. And I found out in just a few minutes that the night before, there was a guy that decided that he wanted to die. And he drove a, a, a big late 80s uh, two-door coupe with a big long front end. And he parked it all the way at the back corner of the parking lot facing the front doors of the church. And he decided that he was going to put his foot on the accelerator as hard as he could. And that he was going to smash through the front doors of the church that he was going to miss the huge welcome center, that he was going to miss the, the, or he was going to go through, rather, the, the 25 or so pews, that he was going to crash into the altar at the front, and there, in his mind, he was going to die. You say, why in the world would someone want to do that? In his thinking, he wanted to die close to God. Now, he was undoubtedly slightly inebriated. 
He may have been very depressed. I, I, I don't know everything that went into it, but that was his thinking. I want to die close to God, so if I can get all the way to the altar of this church. The problem was that he ran into a four-by-four four post, a steel post, that kept him from getting all the way there, and because he drove a car with a big front end, he lived to tell about it. But he believed that God was in that place. You see what I'm saying? He believed that God was not with him in his car as he sat at the other end of the parking lot. He believed that God was up there at the altar. Is that strange thinking to you? But that is how people think. They believe that God is somewhere else and they think that he's here in the church. In two separate occasions in the Old Testament, in fact, we sang about it this morning, when we sang that song about the glory of God, we sang about those occasions in the Old Testament, one when Moses dedicated the temple and the other went, or the tabernacle, and one where Solomon dedicated the temple, that literally the cloud of God, the Shekinah glory of God, descended on those places, and God literally filled those places with his presence. He literally, in a, in a physical manifestation, his glory was evident and filled those places and it appeared as a cloud. You say, well, you know, uh, Kevin, this, we're talking about stuff that happened in the Bible. That stuff doesn't really happen here today. Ask uh, Jack Hayford if that happens. Jack Hayford is uh, a man that served for about 30 years at, at the church of the, on the way in, in Van Nuys, California. He's a man that served as the president as the, of the Foursquare denomination. And in the church that he pastored, there were things happening in that church that they could not explain. And they had a deliverance service over the, actually their building. And they, they, there were crazy things going on. And then they had some special services. And in their sanctuary, the sanctuary filled with a cloud. Okay? And it stayed there, not for one Sunday or two Sundays, but it stayed there for three years. Okay? Now, if, if Jack Hayford is telling this and writing about this and it hadn't happened, I guarantee you that it would be refuted. Literally, the presence of God came into that building in a way that people could see. I love to hear from people that come to the church and, and maybe they haven't been in a church before or maybe it's been a long time and they come in and they say, I could feel something in that place. When worship happened, I could sense something. I could feel something. You say, what is that? It's the presence of God. We may not be able to see the cloud of God in this room, but we can sense the very presence of God. You say, what, what is that all about? We don't have those kinds of manifestations necessarily. I've never personally seen that myself. But how do we know that God is here and how can we ultimately connect with him? I want you to remember that the Apostle Paul has told us that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, not the building. It's not the bricks and mortar. 
This room was built as a gymnasium and a multi-purpose room. I, I really don't want to point this out to you because maybe you don't see it on a weekly basis, but there's a basketball hoop there and a basketball hoop there. Lest you forget, under this carpet is hardwood floors with lines on it to play basketball. This place is not where God's spirit is. This place is where God's spirit is. It's in you. It's in me. He said, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 18, verse 20. He said, for where two or three gather in my name, what did he say? There I am with them. Church is a gathering of God's people in the name of Jesus, and when we get together, we receive the gift of his presence, but in a way that we don't get all the time when we're alone. There's a difference. When we gather as the church, when we come together as the body of Christ, something happens. You say, well, I know something happens. Nikki is up here leading worship. And that's exciting to me. Listen, it's not about Nikki, and it's not about Marie, and it's not about the guitars or the keyboard. It's about the presence of the Lord. When we begin to worship Him together, it's about the presence of God. I, I, I tell you what, this morning, if you think you were hot, okay, the drummer had to call for different clothes after rehearsal. Okay, and there's a, there's a little fan in there that sucks in fresh air from this room, okay? So you're, you're, the air you're breathing and spitting out, that's his fresh air, okay? I'm just saying, I'm just saying. That's what, it's not this room, it's not this place. It's us as God's people. That's where the presence of God ultimately is. And when we gather together as his people, we receive a blessing from the Lord of his presence being in that place. Now, we're certainly told that we should pray and seek God on our own. Matthew chapter 6, verse 6, Jesus said, But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. So on a daily basis, we should be getting alone with God. We should be having time that we are spending with Him. But we need to be getting together with God's people. We need to be worshiping on a corporate level together because there's a special promise that we are given when we come together and that promise is this, I am with you. That's the promise. If you get nothing else, I hope you take that home with you today. Number two, it provides us with encouragement to navigate the trials of life. Social media, for the most part, it's designed to be able to share the wonderful experiences of our lives, the things that are happening. We post all the latest good stuff that's going on. We post our, our vacation pictures, our new nails and hair, our new relationship, our new status. I love that one when someone's status changes, you know. They're in a relationship, you know, and that status changes. 
Uh, I love, you know, when, when they get engaged and they have pictures of the guy kneeling down, and that's not staged at all. Um, but they, they do that, and they, what, they change that status, and they put those pictures on there. Here's my favorite, the new big fish, okay? Ken, you know what I'm talking about, right? You get that new big fish, you got to take a picture of it. If you're going to post something on Facebook, let's put a nice, let's, let's put a nice fish on there, right? I, I love doing that. In fact, if you want to really have fun, take that fish that you caught five years ago that was really huge and repost it. People think you caught it this week, okay? I'm, it's true. It's true. You will have more fun with that if you do that. Trust me. We, we put uh, the new renovations to the house. We put the picture of the new car, the new truck. We put pictures of the day at the beach. You know, we put pictures of, of, of all this stuff. And the biggest one is babies. Okay, babies and grand, first babies and grandbabies. I'm sorry, second and third kids, okay, but the first kid gets all the pictures, and it used to be that we paid professionally for that, now we just put it on Instagram, and, and it's just nothing but pictures of babies. Grandparents love to do that same thing. But there's also another kind of post that we see on Facebook that's a little bit different, and it doesn't usually have pictures, it doesn't even have like cute emojis that are on there. Uh, and generally, it's pretty vague. And if I had to describe my interpretation of the post, here's what I would describe it as. I need help, and I don't know what to do. And I need to know that there's someone out there that cares about what I'm going through. They don't tell us but they put it out there. And the responses that come to them are, you know, you got this. I'm with you, girl. And my favorite is just prayers. Now, let me ask you this. What really happens? And I'm sure that the person who posted it, I'm sure that they are, are sincerely grateful for those who are responding. I'm sure those who are responding really mean well from their hearts. But what is really happening in that dark hour when they really need someone? Nothing. Nothing is happening. Because more than likely, they're alone. They have no one who's there with them. John chapter 16 and verse 33, Jesus said this, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The Apostle Paul tells us over and over that we are the body of Christ, and when we come together as that body, we experience the promise not only of His presence, but the promise of being able to provide emotional support for each other and to receive emotional support from each other. Now, I had a conversation this morning. I actually had a, a different uh, illustration that I was going to use, but someone came up to me this morning and, and uh, a call came in at the thrift store yesterday and there was a family in this community, a family of believers that, that uh, were experiencing an incredibly intense hardship. And they, they were going to be staying in their car last night, okay, of every night in the UP to be living in your car, last night would not have been one of the better ones, okay? And so when we 
when we, uh, when we hear about things like that happening, you know, we, we start to wonder, well, what, what is God calling us to do? And this family was going through an incredible difficulty, an incredible hardship. They didn't have a place to stay. They had, they had moved into the community recently. They'd gotten jobs, but they didn't have a place to live. They, they didn't have the resources uh, through which to be able to take care of their needs. They have children, and they didn't know what to do. But through one of God's people, the church was mobilized, and that need was met. And they didn't have to stay in their car last night. They were able to stay in an apartment that was provided because someone made phone calls, because someone jumped into action. That person is a part of the body of Christ. It's, that person is a part of the church. When, when, we are, when we are in need, when we have trials, and Jesus said, you will face many trials in this life, we, we need the body of Christ to gather around us to help us through those trials. Are you sure you agree with that? I think, I think a lot of times we live as, as the church, we're proud and we're willing to help other people go through their trials, but it, when it comes to our trials, we're going to keep it to ourselves. We're not going to share it because then I'm going to look like I'm in need or I'm going to look weaker than I should. Guess what? We need to gather together and be encouraged by others because we are going to go through trials in life. And that's exactly what God desires us to do. There are a group of people in our culture that we refer to here in the office as CEOs. That's not chairman, executive officer. It's Christmas and Easter only. Christmas and Easter only. They say, hey, man, I, I come to church. I, I was there. I was there just at Easter, Pastor. I, you know, I was a part of the church. Hey, don't, don't be throwing stones at me. Well, I'm not doing that. But let me tell you this. When you just come on Christmas and Easter, how many people do you know? How many people actually would, would be able to know that you need that sort of support, that you need that sort of encouragement? And if the next time that the church sees you is six months later, how much encouragement, how much support would they be able to give you? Friends, we need the body of Christ. We need to come together as the body of Christ in order to be encouraged. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 25 says this, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, get this, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Why? Because as the day of the Lord approaches, we will have more and greater trials and tribulations. And we need that support and encouragement from the body of Christ. Number three, it gives me the opportunity to make an impact. Jim Howden uh, has a, a website called Culture University, and I read an article of his called The Four Roots of Encouragement, and he says this, that man's greatest fear would be to live a life without significance. In other words, not making a difference in this life, it, when, when we come to the end of our life, not making a difference is the greatest fear that someone has. And I want you to know, God has created you to make a difference. That was a resounding amen. 
was resounding. I'm sure that in your hearts you were screaming it out. God has created you to make a difference in your job, in your family, in your marriage, in your neighborhood, in your community, and in your church. Listen, I'm not kidding here. He has created you uniquely to make a difference. I want to see you make that difference, even in our world. Now, Wednesday, we're going to celebrate Independence Day. In our nation's history, there have been 1.1 million soldiers that have paid the ultimate price for our freedom. Isn't that awesome? Let's just thank those that have served. Last Sunday, I don't know if he's here today, I, I did not see him, but a young man from our youth group, his name is Doug, was here in the service, and he had a uniform on. His uniform that he's wearing, he has just finished basic training and then the first part of his schooling. 1.1 million have paid with their lives, and there are 150,000 young people like Doug every year that sign up for the military. Why? Yeah, you can give them a hand. Why? Why? Why do they do that? I'll tell you why. I believe it's because they want to make a difference. I came across a, a website and it's a military support website called militaryspot.com. They list three out of the top ten reasons that, that young people sign up every year. Number one is to serve our country and to protect your country's liberty and freedom. Number two is to stop terrorism. Number three is duty and honor for your country. They believe that by serving, they will make a difference. I believe you've been created to make a difference. And there's a similarity. You see, I believe that God has called his people and the church, and he's called us to make a difference by serving. In Ephesians 6, 7, Paul says this, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. In serving the needs of others, we are making a difference in their lives. And we were made to do good works. He created us to serve others. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul says this, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. I can't just stand there and hold that the whole time. I believe that God has created you and I. He's prepared us to do good things. He's created us to make an impact. He wants you to make an impact in the world, so he has given you unique gifts to use to serve other people. Peter said in 1 Peter 4 verse 10, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace. It is in its various forms. So when we come together as a part of the body of Christ, when we come together as part of that body, we can make a greater impact. The impact of our outreach is created by the relationship which is developed by the practice of coming together. Let me say that again. 
The impact of our outreach is created by the relationship which is developed when we practice coming together on a regular basis. I believe we can make a greater impact in this world together than we can individually. I believe it. Number four, it allows me to discover a deeper sense of purpose in my life. So let me ask you this, what's your purpose? What's God's purpose for your life? I'll tell you what, for myself, one of the greatest gifts that God ever gave me, he gave to me in 1978. That's a long time ago. I was 14 years old. Um, I know Mike Ansel is here today. He is uh, our Royal Ranger leader. I know that a number of the the guys that helped lead that those Ranger boys are here. I was a Royal Ranger. I was I was one of those little uh, guys running around the church. I was 14 years old. I'm still a little guy running around the church. I was 14 years old, and we went to the National Camperama in Farragut State Park, Idaho. And it was there with 3,000 other boys from around the country that God spoke to my heart and, and called me into the ministry. I knew that I knew that I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt. And since that day, I have never questioned God's purpose or plan for my life. That's the greatest gift that he ever could give me. And, and I, I, I appreciate that. My point is this. He has a specific and that specific a plan for each of you. It doesn't mean it's the same plan as me. It doesn't mean that if he didn't call you into the ministry that you missed it. It means he has a plan for your life. He has a purpose for your life. Romans 8.28, Paul says this. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And when the scripture says all things, it includes persecution, it includes trials, it includes suffering. Barnes Notes on the Bible says this, All of our afflictions and trials, all the persecutions and calamity to which we are exposed, though they are numerous and long continued, yet they are among the means that are appointed for our welfare. God said literally that the troubles that we have in our life, that God is working through them to bring about His purpose and His plan in our lives. I still remember quoting a country song in the first sermon I ever preached. I, I, don't, I don't even know what the name of the song is. I just remember the lyrics. I beg your pardon. I never promised you a rose garden. I, I literally believe that if we think that, that because we come to the Lord that everything's going to be perfect, we have been misled by our own thinking. Jesus said we will have troubles, but he is going to work through us. He is going to work in us. And that he is actively working in every positive and negative situation in our lives 
to bring about his purpose. We know that God has a plan to prosper us, to give us a hope and a future. The Bible says in Proverbs, the purposes of the Lord will stand. Job says God's purposes cannot be thwarted. Isaiah 55, 8 says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts than your thoughts. We may not understand why God is doing the things that he's doing in our lives, but I want you to understand he is working to bring about his purpose and his plan in our lives. And we don't understand it. Even once we get through it, we may not understand it. But he's working out his purpose. He's working out his plan. And when we come together as the church, I believe that we have the opportunity to leave with a greater sense of God's purpose than when we came. Because we've gathered together with other believers, because we sense the presence of the Lord, because the Holy Spirit has spoken to us through worship, through fellowship, through the preaching of the Word. Don't be shocked. Don't be shocked when less and less people in the United States are going to church on Sunday morning. Don't be shocked. That's the way our culture is going. But Jesus said, I will build what? My church. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. 